Welcome to Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and Denise Mina is returning to the podcast to talk about the second murderer and three fires because she is an overachiever. Uh, the second murderer, which features Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe, prowling the mean streets of Los Angeles, looking for a lost heiress and a murderer or two. So welcome back, Denise. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So what's a nice Scottish lass from Glasgow doing, channeling an American-born, English-educated, sometime poet who, at age 44, turned to writing detective fiction in Los Angeles after he lost his job with an oil company during the Depression? Well, he, he lost his job, and I think it's fair to say this, because of his alcoholism. And um, and it really, we, we are the hellmouth of the alcoholic diaspora in Scotland. So who else could properly write about Chandler? He's so funny because we know so much about alcoholism now that you can actually trace his illness progressing as his books go on and he becomes more bitter and irascible and opinionated. And uh, and at the time, it must have just seemed really baffling. Like, what's he on about? Um but Chandler, for me, has always felt very, you know, familiar because I just love his writing so much. And I also love P.G. Woodhouse. I don't know if you know this, but P.G. Woodhouse was at the same school as Chandler and they had the same English master. And they're both masters of the simile and the metaphor. And uh, really strikingly, that is kind of what they're known for. And they both had the same English master, who I think must have trained them up in that there must have been a, a lot of wordplay in that you know so um he's never felt that strange and I think LA has changed so much it's probably as familiar to me as it is to most people who live in LA the LA of 1940 it's probably you know no more distant from me than it is from them you know what is it about Marlowe that continues to fascinate readers uh and the entire crime fiction universe not just readers but viewers and you know it's it's he's like the uber uh detective the uber private investigator can i just swap my earbuds because i think they've just run out of juice sure can you hear me i can hear you but oh can you hear me is that okay i think i'm speaking on um what am i speaking on i think i'm speaking on i'm so so chaotic. Uh, other ones? Got these ones. I just, I just use the computer. I, you know, I I have the kind of ears that they fall out of, and all of a sudden I'll be sitting there and go, "There's nothing there." I'm missing one. Does that say? No, 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 no. I'm saying I I have the kind of ears that that the, the don't work for. Just, they pop. They spontaneously pop out. <laughs> well, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Is the yes. mic okay? Yeah, and the okay, mic and, and the recording is the little lines are doing what they're supposed to do. Fantastic. That's great. Um, uh, well, you know, I mean, I think the reason that Marlowe endures so much is because he has that. I think he wasn't just startling at the time, but he is like a working class guy, which you know, in Scotland was huge because if you ever saw working class people represented in literature, they were kind of stupid or they were servants or they were delivering bad news. And uh, and Marlowe was a very clever guy. He was self-educated. He quoted Shakespeare. 
Um, he was working things out, which is the most human of all um, emotions. But more than that, he had his own value system that he was living to. And it wasn't that he wanted to get rich and it wasn't that he wanted to get the gal. It was that he was trying to live with integrity. And I think that's why he endures. And I think that's, you know, I mean, earlier detectives didn't really have that. I mean, Sherlock Holmes wanted to show off. I think also, you know, Marlowe didn't really try and have the big puzzle element. It was less that you wanted to solve the mystery than that you wanted to be in the company of Marlowe, I think. And you know? Certainly great company. You're, I mean, you're... You are preaching to the choir. I mean, I, I am, uh, like many people who live in Los Angeles uh, and and are crime fiction fans, I am a huge Marlowe fan. And I just, I think we went back and forth about this. I just reread The Big Sleep. I read an annotated oh. version of The Big Sleep, which was just, you know, I thought I knew a lot about Los Angeles, but there you go. Um, there have a there have been a few authors who've taken up the mantle of uh, Chandler and you're the first woman. So do you think that the gender of the writer makes a difference? Cause I'll be honest, I thought your Marlowe was more on point than John Banville's by a lot. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. But I mean, I do think, I do think that um, actually in this instance, the gender of the writer does make a difference because I think as a woman, or maybe even as, you know, if a queer writer who's not me took it on, they would see the blind spots. Now, I think one of the things about later Chandler is, is this awful performance of masculinity. It's very hollow. It feels wrong. He's asking women if they want to be raped. Um, he's, you know, punching men and they're falling over. Actually, there's a much softer Marlowe in there and a much more likable Marlowe. I like early Marlowe when he's, you know, uh, he's comfortable with his flaws and his, his weaknesses and it's not that big of a deal. And there's so many aspects of Ellie history, like, you know, the whole gay subculture in Ellie um, around that time that are totally undocumented. He didn't have to be homophobic. He didn't have to be racist. He didn't have to have that bizarre chauvinistic attitude to women. If you look at Marlowe at the beginning of his inception or the, the beginning of his invention, you know, he was much more malleable. He was much more willing to laugh at himself. And I think that might be something women are kind of more familiar with than, than men. I think he started loving James Bond and he loved Fleming. And, and Marlowe sort of slightly morphed into a superhero and he became less likable for me. And, uh, and actually, if you look at what Bond is doing now, Bond is becoming more softer and self-questioning. And it makes him more likable. But actually, nobody really likes that guy who knows everything. Well, you've also been president, but... <laughs> but, uh, but actually, that guy, if you talk to him for any length of time, that guy's a dick. And I don't mean a private detective. <laughs> um, you know, I think I've mentioned and, and people in the podcast know that I live in Los Angeles. And I've actually written a couple of books about the region's history. So I was delighted by the extent of your research, uh, both geographic and historical. And I have to ask, you mentioned this in the answer to the previous question, but were you surprised at the depth of racism, anti-Semitism, and homophobia that there was then? 
especially given that Los Angeles was literally and figuratively the end of the line. And it was the place to which you escaped to reinvent yourself. And you captured it perfectly, I think, when you said, freight trains from all over America delivered fruit and flowers and flour and milk, and all the lost men cut loose. It was the final stop for the terminally confused and hopeless, alcoholics running from trouble. They got here and found there was nowhere left to run. They'd gone all the way west they could. So did you find that juxtaposition of this was the place people came to escape with the fact that the first thing they did was reinvent where they escaped from? Well, no, because I come from a, a Scots-Irish family and that's exactly what we did here. We were like 20 miles from the coast of Northern Ireland. And basically, we recreated all the prejudice and hate that, that we'd been running from. So I think people do that wherever they go. And the thing is, you know, it's an old adage that you can run, but you always take yourself with you. So wherever white people go, there too is anti-Semitism and racism. <laughs> I think we have to be quite honest about it. You know, people bring their prejudices with them. And uh, what I was amazed at, actually, was the history of Skid Row and the history of unhoused people in LA and how consistent that is. That may be the most consistent thing about Los Angeles, um, apart from, you know, the heat and the presence of earthquakes. I mean, it's just staggering, actually, because, you know, um, I wrote it during lockdown or just at the end of lockdown. And uh, so I was doing all these little virtual tours and stuff like that. And there's a history of homelessness um, museum down on Skid Row and, uh, and that that was you know really staggering is how much how much the numbers have increased over recent years but I think that's true of a lot of places that have you know housing crisis um, and uh, and you know I mean I think if you think of it somewhere like Australia which is full of Scottish people who who went out there and basically took all of the prejudices of our culture with them and uh, I think people do that wherever they go. And I think it is a struggle to not just like recreate the problems of, of where you've come from if you are an immigrant. Well, it, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the homelessness. I mean, certainly during uh, this period of time, which I take it to be sort of the end of the uh, depression uh, before the United States is in World War II. It's in that sort yeah. of magical, unmagical period. Um, so you have uh, huge numbers of people that were escaping poverty in other parts of the country and good weather. That sort of, you know, that that's a perfect uh, equation for uh, living rough. And, mm -hmm. and I know the homelessness and the unhoused is a situation here in Los Angeles. Now, I've lived here for almost 60 years now, and... It's always been that way. I moved here when I was, oh, I'm not going to say that people know how old I am. Uh, um, his, you mentioned this uh, when we first started talking, Philip Marlowe is, is, is a complex guy. And early Philip Marlowe was maybe a more complex guy than later Philip Marlowe. And, and Philip, Bill, as Anne calls him, is, he probably drinks too much and he doesn't have the proper respect for law and order, air quotes, and propriety. And he's like the last decent man in a corrupted world, though, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And 
you point this out, you have two uh, hoteliers, and I use that in the, in the loosest possible sense, that make observations about Philip Barlow. Um, uh, one of them, uh, you write, he looked me up and down and had me pegged as a tragic romantic. The thought made him smile and not in a kind way. And another hotelier, uh, Sunshine, uh, says to Marlowe about the other men that were in the place that she rents, they're broken, you're sad, different thing. I thought yes. you really, that really just sort of puts a, you know, it sort of nails him really well. Sunshine was a real person, that hotelier. She was a real person. There was an Egyptian woman who ran a bordel, a, a, a hostel down on Skid Row at that time. And there was also a German beer hall. So you can tell that I knew about I loved the it. German beer hall. Did you know about that? Yeah. Yeah, did you? Yeah. So I just thought, God, you know, there would have been people fleeing, um, you know, that, that the German guy would have known. There would have been people who had come over here, you know, that, that he had, you know, why was he here? What was it like for him be living and knowing that the war was coming? You know, um, uh, yeah. But anyway, I did far too much research. I got really, really into it. And my plan was to come over and drive around in an Oldsmobile because the driving in something like James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice is so important. Mm -hmm. It is so important and it is basically the whole alibi rests on whether or not you could get up a hill in one of those old cars. Um, and it's something I'd still love to do, actually, you know, because I have to stop and rest the engine. I, oh, listen, I'm I, come have, it. I have an old car. It's not an Oldsmobile. Oh, do you? It's not an Oldsmobile. <laughs> but um, Jay Leno actually does posts videos of himself driving these old cars. So my, I was reduced to just watching him in an Oldsmobile over and over again to try and get a flavour of it. But you, you have to feel how it, it moves, you know, and and movie driving at that time, so bad. I mean, they're like swinging the, the wheel around. <laughs> you don't really get a sense of it. And the roads are still, uh, especially the roads of the hills that you're talking about, the, leading up to the Montgomery's, uh, which is the family of the heiress, um, which I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say possibly was based on the Doheny's. You're completely right. You're absolutely spot on, yeah. <laughs> um, I've driven up, as a matter of fact, um, I just did an event for the 100th anniversary of the election that I wrote about, the, about Beverly Hills. And I drove up there and I remember thinking, no, this is quite a drive from the gate up yeah. to where you park. It's My car was was not happy. Um, is, that, is it is it the old car? Is it the old car? I mean, it is very steep that road. Yeah, I have you know? I have a and I have an old twelve year old. Uh, it's a nice car. It's a you know, but it's twelve years old, and it it doesn't love it doesn't love the steep hills. And I live in the hills, so it's it's always a challenge. I'm always happy to get home. Uh, <laughs> um, so. Okay, we went off on a total tangent. Um, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, I'm so happy to talk to you. That um, so Marlowe's misguided beliefs, though they sort of pile into the tragic romantic moniker, and he's still, you know, his misogyny. For example, you mentioned that he's not quite as um, 
misogynistic in this book uh, and in early Marlowe as he is later on, but it, it costs him and it sort of costs him. I don't want to give away the book, but it, it costs him a love interest, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, he's his love. Um, he never has sex in the Chandler books. Interesting. He uh, barely kisses women, but he is very fervently interested in women, which I think might reflect Chandler's romantic attitudes, having been at a boys' school. So he's kind of fascinated by women, but he does find it very difficult to connect. And he really likes to be alone. And I thought, well, that's quite an interesting dynamic, actually, for someone who craves connection and craves justice and decency, but actually doesn't see it very many places. And uh, and I think... Anne Reardon is in, um, is she in The Long Goodbye? She's in The Little Sister, is she? Little Sister, I think. She's a, she's, she, so she's a character who's been in the original Chandler books. And I thought she was a match for him and he couldn't bear to see her. What a shame. You know, she's, she's financially independent. She's good looking. She's a bit older. She doesn't want kids. And you could see that he, he respected and liked her. Uh, but he just couldn't, she asked to work in his office and he said no and then didn't really contact her. And she was clearly interested in him. And I thought, well, that's a really interesting dynamic, you know, and, and it does speak of somebody who finds that kind of intimacy very difficult, you know. Um, and what if he allowed himself to harbour those hopes? What would that do to him? And I don't know if it would take him anywhere good. Well, it didn't, in this book, it didn't necessarily take him someplace bad, except that he wore sadness. To wit, uh, Sunshine's comment, yeah. they're broken, you're yeah. sad. Um, we should talk, I guess, a little bit about, about the story. Um, it, it, in some ways, it is set up like many uh, Philip Marlowe stories. He's called to look for somebody, a missing person, often a woman. And, uh, but what he finds is complicated. And he, and the, and the journey to discovery, he is usually filled with way more than just the person. And so, you know, when you were building this and, and, and to me, it looked familiar, especially to conviction, the way you built this story and the revelations along the way, I thought, um, I thought you, I'm trying to do this without introducing any spoilers. I thought you did a terrific job of oh, thank you. setting it up, getting Marlowe to where he needs to go and then having the floor drop out beneath him, literally and figuratively. So, can you can you talk a little bit about how you built the story? Well, what well actually I, I paid a lot of attention to Chandler and like yourself, I'm a bit of a nerd, Nancy. And so I love doing that. So I did lots of things like worked out visuals of what a Chandler book looks like that I love, right? So where are the beat points? What is the rhythm of it? What are the size of the chapters? I even did like a little sort of Morse code dot dot dash of his sentence structure because his sentence structure is much shorter than mine would be 
his average word per book, I think, is about 75, 80,000, mm -hmm. whereas I would tend to go to 90, 95, 100. Um, and so I wanted it to feel like a Chandler book as much as possible. But I mean, you know, I think you always bring your own voice to it. But building up the story, I really sort of um, looked at his beat points and he does always have a point where he doesn't, it's a, a kind of moment of death thing where he really doesn't know what's going on. He's just following the next lead. And there is often a point where he double backs, doubles back on himself. So I was trying to recreate all those things. And then, um, and also with the, the, the B story, which is like the Pasco Pete story about these old cowboys. I actually got that from a podcast as usual. Um, and uh, apparently there was a bar where all the cowboy extras who had been cowboys drank and they would all just wait and listen for the phone going and that's how they would get parts and then they would turn up to these old cowboy movies in their actual working gear and and perform as background um, extras or featured extras even in these movies. So, so I sort of added that in to give a more familiar structure to us now, you would have the A, a story and the B story. And, and what that is, is a lot of Chandler books get really lost, right? He gets really lost in the story. You know, he goes off to Monterey for no apparent reason and then gets drunk in a hotel room. And you can see Chandler as a writer thinking, I don't know what to do now. I just I don't know what to do. Um, so I thought, you know, if it was a bit more familiar, I mean, what the B story does is you're saying to the reader, look, I know what I'm doing. And this is going to pay off. If you stay with me during the lost moments, this it'll be all right. I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to not find a murderer. This is going to pay off. So the B story is a sort of, um, it's an amuse bouche for the reader to get them to trust you. So that's kind of that's more synthetic. But the rest of it is as rambling and kind of um, happenstancey as Chandler, because actually Marlowe is brave and he's quite reckless. But he 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 doesn't really you know he's not that um, he's not bringing like another skill set to the situation. It's just his intrepidness that that helps him solve most of the crimes, you know. Yeah. And uh, you know what I mean. He's not Columbo. He's not like coming in under the radar. He's not psychic. He doesn't understand forensic science. It's just how intrepid and how much integrity he has that he can only tell the truth. That's the only thing he can do, and he says that in the book. You know, even to his clients, he's not going to lie to them, and um, uh, and so I, so I, you know, I took a lot of elements of Chandler that I really loved and tried to apply them to the story, and that's where the story structure came from. But some of it was just quite synthetic, and uh, and it was just a way of saying to the reader, you know, um, you can just enjoy this; it's going to be all right, because you don't always know when you read an estate book, do you? If you really love someone and you read an estate book, you do think, oh, this isn't my in, you know, image of the picture. Do you know what I mean? It can be really disappointing, you know? Yes. And, uh, and yeah, it, can, it really can be. And you really want to honour the readers who love uh, that character as well and not say, well, I'm just taking him to a humourless place because, uh, you know, or I'm I'm going to make him, you know, kind of ubermensch or, you know, let's play with the racism here. <laughs> but you do, uh, you anticipate... One of my questions, you know, I, I mentioned that I recently read The Big Sleep in an annotated version. And, you know, Chandler, as I think is reflected through Marlowe, had a conflicted approach. And let's talk specifically about the queer community. 
that while under the radar was very robust in, in Los oh, Angeles, yeah. um, either because of the film community or just because this was the place everybody escaped to. So there are queer characters in the second murderer and we're not gonna mention who they are. And, you know, they run the gambit from sympathetic to pathological. So was writing from that point of view challenging for you? Because I, you know, you're you're definitely not homophobic. You might be the least homophobic person on the planet. Uh, but, you know, you had to integrate a little bit of Marlowe's hesitancy. I'm thinking of Jimmy the One, uh, who is just a brilliant, not, you know, not, not a major character, but just one of these gemstones that is included in the book. You know, he's, he's an incredibly handsome man uh, who is gay and doesn't mind who knows it. That's yeah. kind of brilliant. So was, was Do you know, that... I have to tell you, no, Nancy, I have to tell you, Jimmy the One was a real Glasgow guy. And he was called Jimmy the One because he was the one out gay guy in Glasgow. And uh, he, I wouldn't say he was very, very handsome or anything like that, but you're talking about that gay community in LA. And I think that community was probably all built around someone like Jimmy the One, because I think you can talk about social structures and you can talk about being an ally, but actually very often those pockets of tolerance formed around one or two individuals who just wear who they wear and they flatly refuse to be closeted and they refused to be shamed or belittled. And um, and that was what Jimmy the One was in Glasgow. Um, and uh, he died a few years ago, I think just before COVID. Um, but that, so that whole book really is a sort of um, a hymn to Jimmy the One and who, he loved movies and he loved musicals. And it's, it's uh, really a sort of a poem to Jimmy the One. And I know that for the next 15 years, gay guys in Glasgow will be coming up to me and saying, Thank you for putting Jimmy the One in that book, because that's who Jimmy the One would have been. In his dreams, Jimmy the One would have been a handsome guy who wore a bellhop uniform and lived in California and kept being discovered and then dropped because of his dirty doings. <laughs> and you know, do you know who I was thinking of? Um, John Wayne, because he had a boyfriend early in his career. And if you look at pictures of him, he is staggeringly beautiful. He's beautiful. And if he had had the courage of someone like Jimmy the One, that's who he would have been, you know. So I think I think that that kind of um, I mean the, the 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 gay subculture in LA may have been more strong then than it was than it is now. I mean I understand there are very few lesbian bars in LA. There are I certainly know. not butch bars. There aren't you know femme bars. Um, and a friend of mine who's a very close friend of mine who's gay, she said in in the nineties she said, "What's going on?" I mean you know, lesbians are coming into work and they're going like that. She asked me to marry her. And she's like, we're so heteronormative now. It's, we're being swallowed up. <laughs> this is like an old lady conversation. <laughs> you no, know what I mean? But it's, it's you know, I, 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 I've worked in magazines. I worked with a number of, of gay people. And uh, one of my closest friends I worked with, uh, what she wasn't really out, but it was obvious that she was gay. And she and uh, so she had an ambivalence towards her own sexuality, but she did love to go to bars, and she would take me with her. 
And I would have a fabulous time. It was so nice yeah. to be sort of, you know, thought of as I bet you did, Nancy. What? <laughs> I bet you did have a lovely time. <laughs> you know, for a, a straight woman in a in a lesbian bar, I had a wonderful time. I would, you know, sort of really danced like no one was watching. Were you the belle of the ball? I bet you were. No, no, it that, was usually someone younger and blonder. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, but there aren't very many um, lesbian bars in LA anymore, are there? No, nope. they're, like you said, it's all heteronormative and, uh, you know, uh, I don't, there aren't a lot, there aren't as many bars in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. yeah we're, we're, of course. We're, we're a weird town. Um, yeah. I wanted to talk about one thing. Uh, and I didn't actually write this in a question, but it's something that keeps coming to mind when I think of Philip Marlowe and when I think of the sort of golden age of uh, detective fiction in Southern California. And I, I like to tell people that in my case, uh, my love affair with crime fiction started with Ross McDonald, that I got into the zebra stripe purse and never got out. Is right. the idea of redemption. Mm -hmm. And the idea of redemption for Philip Marlowe, because I think that is one of the things that he is looking for. And it's one of the things, it's a through line in this kind of noir fiction, that that's what he's looking for. He he won't lie uh, and he has difficulty finding love and he barely kisses women and doesn't have sex. But what he's looking for is redemption and we don't know what from. So was that something that sort of entered into the into the stew or am I just way overthinking? I think you're spot on there. And I actually think about Graham Greene watching Pepe Lamoco. I don't know if you know that film. Mm -mm. Um, it's, it's set in the Alhambra in Algeria and it's, a, it's in French and it's about a gangster who's hiding in the Alhambra and... Uh, um, and at the end, there is a very obvious redemption. He gives his life for uh, the woman he loves. And uh, Graham Greene was this very serious literary writer. And he said when he saw that film, he knew that crime fiction could be about very high topics, about redemption and about, you know, um, finding your soul and about resolving, you know, really fundamental spiritual concerns. And that's when he started writing um, his entertainments, as he called them, or stooping to, to low art forms. But I mean, I think that, I think with Marlowe, it's very, very pronounced that what he's always trying to do, and I suppose it, all noir fiction is have integrity. And maybe that is a sort of, um, you know, um, a real world form of redemption that he's trying to be true to himself, which is not something that you really see in a lot of, um, you know, literary fiction. It's, that is their dogged concern is to, to stick to their rules in the face of an unfriendly world, you know? And I, I, I uh, think literary fiction is often about people trying to escape their, mm, yeah, their who they are rather than embrace or who transcend. They are. They're trying to transcend and he's being dogged. And I think but I think also it is also about class, you know? It is also about um, you know, the offers of money are there. You could you could abandon, you know, Manny Perez, those people, those dislikable low people, 
and join, you know, the jet set. I mean, class is so fluid in the States compared to Europe, especially at that time. If you turned up with loads of money, you were upper middle class. That's just not the case in Britain. You know, you have to change your accent. You have to expunge your background and to, uh, you know, to a very different kind of degree. I mean, I grew up, my dad was an oil man and he worked for American companies. So they would send, if you made a certain amount of money, they sent you to very expensive schools. And we were sent to schools where we could not use our own accent because you would be bullied, you know, because they were British schools. Now, if that was in America, you would just soften it a little bit or, you know, uh, but in, in because they were American companies, that kind of social fluidity was assumed. But I think for Marlowe to remain faithful to the people that he is in among and the people that he identifies with, that is a form of redemption. I think you're, I think that's absolutely right, you know. Well, and, and, you know, I think a lot of crime fiction is about the restoration of order. But in these days, people are much more sceptical about copaganda and about, you know, um, underpinning the status quo, which is quite problematic. And suddenly the veil has fallen off lots of people's eyes and the restoration of order is the cops killing somebody because they suspect them of a crime. That is a lot of crime novels finish with the police killing people, you know, because they're sure he's a serial killer. You don't know that. I'm sorry. Well, I think I think the I, the introduction of moral ambiguity into crime fiction is probably not a bad thing. You you mentioned Ian Fleming and and Bond is so obnoxious. Of course, it's not. It is kind of crime fiction. It's a thriller. It's a spy thriller. But you know the idea that uh, he could be judge and jury is. I don't think it works in sort of in the long term, whereas moral ambiguity might. Um, Marlowe is not morally ambiguous, but he he understands it in you know at least yeah. through your book he he can't quite go there, but he understands it. I think, and he lives he accepts that he lives in a world. I think he's more rigid than the world he lives in, and I think that's what's interesting about him is that he knows that he lives in a, a morally fluid world, which is why he's in L.A. Now, you know, if he was living in Richmond, it would be a very different story. If he was living somewhere formed or somewhere, you know, if he was living somewhere a bit more rigid, a bit more, uh, you know, with more history, um, then, you know, I think he would be, he would have to, He, you know, it wouldn't be as fluid. But the, the beautiful thing about L.A. is... You know, everything is moving all the time. All the parts are moving. I couldn't believe that, um, is it Santa Monica Boulevard used to be a bridleway? A Sunset Boulevard. Uh, Sunset. Uh, Through through Beverly Hills. Yeah, it was a a bridal path and it was built. Here, you you really want the nerdy thing? It was built when Beverly Hills was created as a city in the early part of the 20th century, I think. It was incorporated in 1911. And, uh, you know, it was built by the people that built uh, the Beverly Hills Hotel, the the Andersons, and all of the oil money, the Doheny's, uh, Henry Huntington. And they built the Beverly Hills Hotel and they set up these lots and they put in a bridal path. Henry Huntington sent in a couple of these mini trains that they called the dinky lines. And, uh, you know, that, and you could take the bridal path pretty far 
west because there was basically nothing between yeah. Beverly Hills, between the western border of Beverly Hills and Santa Monica. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was an interesting dynamic, you know, and, and they probably built the bridal path to attract people like Will Rogers, who had horses, who had a polo field adjacent to his home, and Tom Mix, the the, the cowboy, um, uh, the star of cowboy films. And then there's one other, and his name is escaping me, very early resident of Beverly Hills, who had a stable of horses. And of course, uh, Francis Marion, whose husband was a, a cowboy star. Uh, who also had stables in Beverly Hills. It was horse country. Yeah. He was, somebody met Tom Mix as a treat when he was a kid. It was Orson Wiles got to meet him, and he was like his I, big I thought hero. It was, I thought it was uh, John Wayne. Yes, it was John Wayne. You're right. It was John Wayne. Yeah. He was his absolute hero. Yeah. yeah. Now we're really in the nerd. Now we're really in the fields of nerd. <laughs> But I had Fields to. Of nerd. I had to research all of this for my book, which is you know just this oh. about this very short period in Beverly Hills uh, when they were vote you know uh, campaigning against um, joining the city of Los Angeles because Beverly Hills is an independent city; it's not part of Los Angeles. Is that the is that the the war for Beverly Hills? Yeah, the battle for Beverly Hills. And it was about Vassal for Beverly celebrity. Hills, it was about the birth of celebrity politics and how these worlds came together. And and you talk about reinvention and you talk about uh, moral ambiguity and and sort of finding your way. And that's that's something that uh, people came here to do. You know, mm -hmm. and, and once yeah. they had it, they wanted to preserve it, like everybody yes. else. Keep everyone out. Right. You know, it's the history the of the world, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, close the, the door out of the way. Yeah. <laughs>